Good morning. We are so glad to have you in the house of the Lord this morning. I want to start off the uh, announcements with a little joke. What is blue and not very heavy? Light blue. <laughs> there we go. Um, it is a Chuck Dolls 22nd birthday on the 22nd. So happy birthday, Mr. Chuck. Beulah's uh, high school graduation is in the high school gymnasium at 1.30. And we have Wednesday night Bible studies for all ages uh, beginning uh, dinner at 6.30. Adults begin at uh, 6.45. Adults, please note the time change, exclamation point, from Pastor. So please note that he's coming for you. We are going to actually today, I cannot believe it, finish our series in First and Second Thessalonians. Yes. I am so happy, I might just read the introduction and read the conclusion and we'll call it good. But join with me in prayer if you would please. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your presence. Father, I thank you for green grass, God, for, for spring, for rain, for moisture. God, I thank you for signs of new life, Father, and I praise you and thank you that, God, we have this church body gathered in this church to worship and honor you. Lord, I pray that as your word goes forth that you would encourage us, that you would edify us, God, that you would speak to our hearts, to our minds, Holy Spirit, that you would give us the understanding to apply these scriptures to our lives. God, give me the grace to bring forth this word, and may everything that is said and done bring glory and honor to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, I won't say for the last time, but uh, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we are going to pick up in verse 6. It's been a while since we've gone through this, but I want to uh, point out that these two books go together. To separate them does them an injustice, and so when you study them, when you read them, go right from one into the other to get the full picture of what Paul was dealing with when he wrote to the Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6 says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition which he received from us. So right off the bat, we're entering into controversy. Uh, basically, we cannot hang out with each other. Um, you guys got to be quicker. Logan told a joke that wasn't even funny, and you guys laughed. <laughs> and then I tell jokes that are really funny, and nobody says anything, so I'm hurt. You have the rest of the sermon to make it up. Uh, but we're going to look at, at an issue, and this is not the first time that Paul has dealt with this issue. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, he said, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. The word disorderly is meant to come from a military term, which means somebody who is out of rank, and it's used in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, it's just translated as disorderly in that one, and so or unruly, I'm sorry, instead of disorderly. And so there's an issue going on that Paul's trying to deal with, and he's trying to do it. Uh, he did it a little bit gently in the first letter. Now he's going to come across a little bit more aggressive. And so we find out what this issue is in 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 12. Word of God says, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. 
For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. There's a lot to unpack in these verses, so we're going to break them down. But what Paul is addressing essentially is that in this Thessalonian church, there were people who thought that the Lord was coming back soon, and so they actually stopped working. And they expected the church to provide for their well-being, and because they were not working, they had all this extra time to go and get into everybody else's business. And they were causing a lot of problems. And so on, on the, the front side, it, it kind of seems like maybe it doesn't apply much today, but the principle of the matter does apply. And so clearly we can see that, that Paul, Silas, and Timothy taught the Thessalonians well. They, I mean, Paul wrote some great letters to them, full of good, sound doctrine and wisdom. Uh, they spent a lot of time with them. They took a, a church in a country that was, or in a place that was not friendly to Christianity. And, and even in spite of outer persecution, this church remained. They were only able to stay at this church a very short amount of time. And yet this church lasted. And so clearly they, they, they taught them well, but Paul uses over 20 times in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, the term Lord Jesus Christ. It's not used much outside of these two letters. And this is more of like a, a I don't know what you call it, more of a formal name for Jesus. So when we find this name, what Paul is doing is Paul is saying, listen, based on who Jesus is, the totality of his being, and the apostolic authority that he has given me, I'm writing this to you, and I have the authority to do so. And so he's not writing a suggestion, he's not writing a hint, he is commanding them. And the issue at hand is work, or better said, the, the lack of work. Um, it seems like sometimes we get into an area where we, we think that work is a bad thing. We think that somehow... Uh, work is, is, is an effect of the fall and that we, before the fall, Adam and Eve just had it great and there was no issues. And I want to be very clear that God designed man to work. He put Adam in the garden to nurture and tend a garden. Uh, I'm not a very good worker when it comes to that because any garden that I've, I've touched has died almost immediately. But it's a lot of work to maintain something like that. Work didn't come because of the fall. Working endlessly and toiling endlessly came because of the fall. So that's where we sit. So these, these people need to understand that we were created to work. And, and Warren Worsby uh, brings out a really, really good point that I had never considered until I, I read this from him, and I wanted to read it to you in its entirety as something to think about, especially to those who feel like you are, are called for more, that God has more for you to do, but, but no doors are opening and you just cannot get anything to happen, listen to what Warren Mersby says. He says, Have you ever noticed that God called people who were busy at work? Moses was caring for sheep. Joshua was, was Moses' servant before he became Moses' successor. Gideon was threshing wheat when God called him. And David was caring for his father's sheep. Our Lord called four fishermen to serve as his disciples. And he himself had worked as a carpenter. Paul was a tent maker and used his trade to support his own ministry. The Jews honored honest labor and required all their rabbis to have a trade. But the Greeks despised manual labor and left it to their slaves. This Greek influence, plus their wrong ideas about the doctrine of the Lord's return, led these believers into an unchristian way of life. This is really something to think about. God didn't call those who were asleep on the couch. 
He didn't call those who were watching Netflix because God didn't open the door for them to do ministry. God called those who were working where they were with what they had. And it's in those places that God found them and called them. And I want to be very clear about this, that, that God is talking specifically to those who are not willing to work, not to those who cannot work. There's a vast difference. These are people that have the, the mental and physical capabilities of working and are choosing not to. And that's what Paul's uh, addressing in this passage. As, as an apostle, Paul has a right to claim financial support and monetary compensation for his ministry. When it came to the Thessalonian church, he did not charge them. And here's why. Because they were an infant church. They were what we would consider a church plant. And so just like ministers in our day and time that go and start a church plant, for the most part, they either have to get outside financing to do so, and most of them have to work what we call a secular job in order to make that happen. They have to work to minister because of the, the church being in a stage of infancy. It, it cannot support the leaders and teachers financially. And so this brings up a, a little bit of a touchy subject, but I want to dive into it. Um, I actually had somebody tell me last week at men's breakfast, uh, it must be nice to only work one day a week. Uh, he is no longer invited back to men's breakfast, so men, take note. Um, I've had people you know, say it must be nice to, to not have to work for a living. Shortly after we got here, I had somebody come up and tell me that uh, they never understood why pastors get paid, and they don't think that pastors should get paid. And I said, duly noted. And so I want to just really quickly go to Scripture uh, to cover this, this issue. Luke 10, 1 through 7 says the following, After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also, and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Galatians 6.6 6 says, Let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. And 1 Timothy 5.17-18 says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And so Paul clearly had a right to, to demand financial support from them, and he chose not to. And he supported himself. He, he was not a burden to the church. And, and before we move further into the scriptures, I do want to say this is not a shameless plug for pay raise. You guys have done excellent. You have taken care of our family from before we got here, and you've done it amazingly well. So I'm not saying that to do that. I'm trying to say that, that Paul clearly taught them that even in ministry, it's okay to work. And so as we get into this, I want us to understand that there's a, a spiritual principle at play that I think for a lot of us will come into play. Second uh, Thessalonians 3, 11 through 12 says, For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. One of the reasons that they were able to be busybodies is because they weren't working. Have you ever been working and somebody shows up and makes it so you can't work because they're not working? Right? Sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's a frustrating thing. There was a, quite a number 
of these Christians in the Thessalonian church that did not work, and it was causing some massive issues. When you don't work, you get bored. When you're bored, what happens? I Forgive me. I thought maybe at some point in time in your lives you guys had been bored at least once. I apologize. We'll move on. Read this. This is from Wordsby again. It says, Idleness is the devil's playground. The Romans had a saying that went like this, By doing nothing, men learn to do evil. Isaac Watts said it this way, For Satan finds finds some mischief still for idle hands to do. The Jewish rabbis taught that he who does not teach his son a trade teaches him to be a thief. And so because these, these Christians were not working, they were basically the devil's playground. He had access to their thoughts. They, they were not wearing their bodies out. They were not wearing their minds out. They were not contributing. And so they were literally mooching off other people and causing problems to those same people. And, and Paul hits it pretty hard. He, he tells them, work in quietness and eat your own bread. In another section, he says that uh, if they're not willing to work, they're, they're worse than an unbeliever. And so this is a, a, a pretty good-sized issue. In 2 Thessalonians 3.13, he says, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. You might wonder why that scripture's in there when he's talking about uh, going against those who are, are not working and exhorting them to, to, to get up and work, but it's because there were Thessalonian Christians that were working while other people were not, and they were also supporting those that were not working. And you know, we all know, it's really hard to persevere in doing the right thing in the midst of a group of people that are doing the wrong thing. And so it was beginning to, to cause division in this church. It was causing a schism. It was beginning to, to really cause them to question, okay, if the Lord's coming back, do we need to work? Who's right? Who's wrong? It was a, a, a large issue. And we know that this is a large issue because we know that some churches have split over the color of the pews, which is not a large issue. And so clearly church division, if... if Paul can stop it before it gets worse. He'll save a church. And that's his goal. Wiersbe again, and I'm going to quote from him a lot, but he, he hits it right on the head. He said, Sin in the life of a believer always affects the rest of the church. As members of his body, we belong to each other and affect each other. The bad example of a few saints can destroy the devotion and hinder the service of the rest of the church. And so imagine with me for a minute, because sometimes we, we separate ourselves from actually entering into the situation if we had, who do I like more? Um, okay, so let's say that this side of the church doesn't work. Nobody over here works. Listen, it had to be one side or the other. Just, it had to be. This side does work. You work well. Imagine that this side of the church comes and, and they're just asking when you're going to feed them and when you're, when you're going to provide their food and when you're going to give them their clothes and when you're going to give them money for this and that. And it's everybody on this side all the time, coming to everybody on this side. And because you don't know the right thing to do, you are giving as much as you can to everybody over here. But imagine, for those of you over here, that you're trying to raise up your children to follow you in a trade. But they're looking at everybody over here and they're saying, but they're not working and they're being taken care of. Why would I need to work? As parents, would that frustrate you? Okay. As friends and members of the body of Christ, would that frustrate you? What happens when Christians are frustrated with each other? You come in and suddenly all these chairs are against the wall, and this gap is a little bit bigger than it was last time. 
And that's just physically. Then comes a spiritual gap. And so Paul's heart behind all of this, Paul's heart behind every pastoral epistle is to correct something that's wrong in the church so that the church can remain strong. Right? That is not leave for anybody on this side to quit working. That's not what we're saying. But was becoming such an issue that more and more of this church was stopping to work, and this church was already hurting to begin with. And so Paul writes to them, and, and he says something really, really strong. He says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 14-15, And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother." These are hard scriptures, but this is church discipline in action. It's not the church discipline where uh, due to uh, an unrepentant sin and an open willful sin, after somebody has gone to somebody once on their own, after they've taken a couple people with them, and after they've gone before the church, that the church says, we're going to excommunicate you. It's not that level. But here's what it is. It's that Paul was calling the whole Thessalonian church to note those who were living this way and to not have company with them. Not to treat them as an enemy, but to not have company with them. And the hopes was that, was that they would become so ashamed at how they were living that they would stop and turn from that sin. And Paul deals with another instance in 1 Corinthians 5 in much the same way. I'm not going to read that today, but you can note that and read that when you go home. But Paul's heart in this matter is not to kick out those that aren't working in the church. It's to draw somehow get their attention so that they will stop doing what they're doing and come back into the church. Uh, he says that they're not to keep company with them, that they might be ashamed. This would entail more than likely two things. One is not letting them partake of the Lord's Supper, which you can see we, we don't really do much church discipline in this day and age. Uh, we don't separate who can take the Lord's Supper and who doesn't. We leave that up to that person and the Lord. Um, but due to their intentional open sin and, and their refusal to listen to him in the first letter, some scholars believe that there was a letter that was written to the Thessalonians that we don't have that addressed this issue again. And then this, this issue, or this uh, letter that we have that we're looking at right now. But it would also entail not going to the home of that person and fellowshipping and not having that person in your home. And I, I want to dig into that because it, it's, a, it's a, a razor fine line, but do not keep company literally means do not get mixed up with. Fellowship means to have in common. So when the church fellowships openly with those who are living in open and unrepentant sin, the church is having all things in common with that person. Which means that the church, in and of itself, is seen to be partaking of that sin because they won't deal with it. And that's what Paul's getting at. Paul's saying, listen, when you fellowship with these people and you, you don't draw a line, you don't say this is wrong, you need to, when, you, when you fellowship and you have communion with these people, and they're openly sinning, and everybody can see that, it shows that you're celebrating sin. And that's what Paul's getting at. And so he tells them that instead of giving approval to their sins through open fellowship, you draw a line in the sand. This is hard. There, there's no easy way to, to just look at this and go about your day. It's hard for a couple of reasons. One is we all have varying levels of knowledge about each other. I don't know everything you do. You don't know everything I do. I don't know everything you've said. You don't know everything I've said. So we have different levels of knowledge about each other. The other hard thing is that we're all at different levels of sanctification. We're growing in Christ. 
Some are more mature than others. Some uh, that are more mature, they don't struggle with the things that some that are less mature do because they've lived long enough. They've, they've grown in their faith. So it's not just an easy, uh, somebody says something that you don't like at church and you just cut them off. That's not what we're talking about. This is a, a large issue that has already been dealt with publicly uh, by Paul, who has the apostolic authority to do this. And adding to that, we don't treat these people like enemies. You don't plot their demise. You don't go around behind their back and, 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 and become a sinner to confront a sinner. You, you don't. But it does mean that you draw a line in the sand. We're not to get our torches. We're not to get our ropes. We're not to get the vigilante party going. But we're also not to live openly in approval of sin that people know is sin. Uh, withdrawing in love and severing the relationship are two completely different things. You don't sever the relationship, but you withdraw enough that, that the person that is causing the offense knows that they need to be ashamed for what they're doing. And they need to know the effect it's having on the whole church. And so this is, this is rough because whether you like it or not, and whether you ask for it or not, God has placed you in this church individually as he wills, which means you become a part of a bigger body for good and for bad means everything that you bring to the table, all your strengths combine with everybody else's strengths. But it also means that all of your weaknesses combine with everybody else's weaknesses, and that's what makes life in the church tricky and hard. It means that the areas of your life that you don't have smoothed out are going to bump up against the areas of somebody else's life that they don't have smoothed out, and it's going to cause some friction. But the good news about friction is eventually over time, it actually smooths things out. And so in this letter, Paul is trying to get them to understand that, listen, you belong to each other, but there's got to be something higher you belong to. And that's the body of Christ. Second Thessalonians 3, 16 through 18, Paul goes on and says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Have you ever stopped to think about why Paul would close this letter out with these words, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. It's because there's currently not peace in the Thessalonian church. There's frustration, there's contention, there's anger, there's, there's fighting going on. If the Lord is Lord of our lives, we're going to have peace. If he's not, we're not going to have peace. Wiersbe again says it really hard, but he says it, if there is trouble in the church, it is because there is trouble in somebody's heart. If Christ is Lord, then there is peace in the heart. If there is war in the heart, then Jesus Christ is not Lord. Ouch. That hurts. James says it a little bit differently and a little bit more forcefully. He says in James 4, verses 1 through 10, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure, that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? but he gives more grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud, 
but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Double ouch. I thank the Lord that James and Paul never got together and co-authored an epistle to the church, because it would be rough. But when you look at this, it's the same thing that's going on, is that these Thessalonians that are living sinfully need to somehow become ashamed of how they're living in hopes that they stop living that way and they turn back and live the right way. Now, we don't have a problem with this so much with people that work and don't work, but all you have to do is look at churches around the world and you can see that because they won't take a stand, because they will not stand up and they will not stand against sin, that sin walks right in the door and it walks right in that door and it sits out here for a little bit and then it walks right up behind here and stands behind the pulpit. And you can clearly see it. There's some, there's some holiness movement denominations that now have drag queens that preach at their churches. I mean, we're not even 200 years out. That would have never happened if somebody somewhere would have said, listen, I love you, but I cannot support what you're doing. It's wrong. Scripture says it's wrong. The Lord says it's wrong. And I'm going to honor the Lord at the expense of you not understanding. It happens because we don't involve ourselves enough in each other's lives to earn a place of respect where we can say, listen, I got something I need to talk to you about. It happens because as a church family, we see each other on Sundays. That's it. You don't know about life. You don't know about what people go through. And so the reason that, that Paul writes what he writes and the reason that James writes what he writes is not to make us feel guilty and to, and to, to load all this, this uh, weight on us of condemnation. It's to, to get people to wake up and realize that there's two ways you can live, for the Lord or against the Lord. And that's it. There's no third way. There's no halfway in, halfway out. Paul's main goal is that he wants there to be peace in this church. He wants this church that, that he went to and, and, and poured into to thrive, to grow, to, to, to become something, to have a difference in the world. But he knows that as long as there's no peace in this church, God's not going to have his way. And so he writes and he says, listen, I'm going to be a little bit harsh about it because you clearly didn't understand the first time. And so I'm going to say it a little bit more bluntly. This is the issue. This is how you do it. And this is why you do it. And Paul's not being mean. We, we can read a lot about what Paul writes. And Paul says some things that are really, really hard to stomach. As a growing Christian, they're still hard to stomach. But his heart behind what he writes is pure. It's for the Lord and it's for the good of individual believers in the church. He, uh, he knows that peace is so important that he says the Lord be with you all because he knows that in the presence of the Lord, there is peace. And so Paul's pastoral heart is clearly seen. There's, there's an issue he addressed. He admonished those that were wrong and he guided those that were obeying. And then he prayed that the Lord would be with them all. And, and 
Paul closes out this letter and he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. He doesn't leave them in a horrible spot. He doesn't spew uh, something harsh at them and, and then just walk away. He honestly prays that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will be with you all. Amen. And I want you to think about this for a minute. It's the grace of God that this first letter to the Thessalonians was ever written in the first place. It's the grace of God that Paul was saved. And instead of persecuting the church, now is writing scripture to the church. It's the grace of God that allowed this second letter to be written. It's the grace of God that allowed Paul and Silas and Timothy to go to these Thessalonians in the first place, even though they had to leave earlier than intended. That's actually even the grace of God as well, because Paul is concerned for the church in a way that he's not concerned uh, for other churches, that he, that he was able to fulfill his mission at. It's a, the grace of God that has enabled those who are obedient to remain obedient. And hopefully it's the grace of God that will allow those who are not living obedient to come to an understanding of how they're living and turn back into the church. It's the grace of God that will reinstate proper standing between brothers and sisters in Christ before Christ. But church, the, the beautiful thing about these, these two letters is just, they talk about the return of Christ, and that's something that we all need to be focused on. We all need to live in light of his return. But I think a, a, a more, uh, a deeper foundation that we can build on is that the same grace that allowed all that to happen is our grace. It's not a different God that lives with us now. It's the same God with the same grace. With that understanding, and as we close the series out, it is my prayer that through going through 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, as long as it took us with all the, the things that happened in between, I honestly thought it was going to be a, like October-November series and we'd be done. We're almost six months into this year and we're just finishing up, but God knew what was going on. He knew everything that was going to happen. In the meantime, it's my prayer that we would love each other enough to live in the grace of God for each other. It's my prayer that we will love God enough that we won't be one of those churches that's here and then gone, where we have a beautiful building that, that people know as a church, and we have our name on the side of the church, and we have an awesome sound system and a beautiful church inside and out, but we're only a church name because we've sold literally our souls to the devil because we won't take a stand against sin. I don't want to be known as the militant church that goes and just beats people over the head. But I don't want to ever be known as a church that has anything in common with the devil. I don't want to be known ever as the church that to put people in the seats forsakes biblical doctrine. What I want to be known as is a church where the grace of God functions openly and freely between all of us for all of us, and because of who Christ is. When you think about all these issues that Paul's dealing with, when you think about uh, the scriptures that we've gone over, and you know that Jesus Christ is going to return, how important is it to you to live ready for his return? Scripture should be of the utmost importance. There's nothing else that matters besides being ready. Right behind that should be the desire that when you look around this room, 
and I, feel free to do so. When you look behind you, when you look to the sides, when you look to the front, that you desire to live your life in a way that will help each other be ready for Christ's return. Church, if we'll do that, if we'll commit to that, if we'll commit to God and to each other, that's what will draw those that need to know the Lord in. Because they'll see love in action, they'll see grace in action, and they'll understand that the church is the body of Christ. Would you stand with me, please? I would like to give you the promise that we're not going to go into another series, but I don't have that. But you're welcome to pray that I don't for a little bit. I would enjoy that. I know that walking verse by verse through books of the Bible is not the most fun. I know I don't run around and I don't shout and I don't hoop and I don't holler. I know that it forces us to look at some things that honestly would be easier to not look at. To just pick some verses that really we like and, and to leave away the ones that we don't like. But that would do disservice to the God who inspired and breathed out the scriptures. And so it's my prayer that, that every word that we've read from scripture coming from these two books and all the scriptures that we've used to support it would find good soil in your heart, that it would produce good fruit, and that as we have looked at the return of Christ, that we would live properly in light of the return of Christ. That's my hope and my goal for each and every one of you and for myself. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take your word that has gone forth, God, verse by verse, word by word, and that, Father, you would use it to bring glory and honor to you, God, that you would use it to shape and mold our hearts, God, to, to reveal the intents of our hearts, God, to show us who we are in light of Scripture, not just individually, but God as a church. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take this word that we've gone over, that you would quicken it in our mind and in our spirit, that you would give us the power to choose your word over ourselves, our desires, or the applause of men. God, I pray that you would help us that each and every time we are together grow closer and closer as the body of Christ. God, open our eyes to see each other as you see us. To look at each other, God, and to know that it's not by accident that anybody's here. That you have a purpose and a plan for why you have placed those here that you have placed here. God, help us to Keep our eyes focused on you, Jesus, on the fact that you will return and that every day that goes by is a day closer to your return. That nobody knows when you will come. And God, the only way to live ready is to be ready. And the only way to be ready is to live ready. Help us, I pray, as we live in light of your return. But God, help us, help us, to reach out to those that probably don't even know about your return in hopes that they can be ready as well, Father. Burden us, empower us, protect us. In Jesus' name, amen.